Hello and welcome to another episode of the Bunker Daily. In an age of disinformation and shameless lies, Bellingcat has become one of the beacons of journalism. Founded in 2014, it has used open source journalism techniques to identify the men behind the destruction of Malaysian Airlines Flight 17 over Ukraine, the poisoners of the Skripals and Salisbury, and the truth about chemical weapons attacks in Syria, among other things. Bellingcat also has a podcast. Last year, season one unraveled the story behind MH17, and the brand new season two solves a horrifying murder in West Africa. Here to talk to me about the podcast and the work of Bellingcat in general is its founder, Elliot Higgins. Hi, Elliot. Thanks for joining me. Hi, thanks for having me on. Hey, I must apologise for dragging you away from the final stages of, a, of an investigation. When will the, I'm sure you can't tell me what it is, but when, when will that be made public? Um, well, it was meant to be yesterday evening. It's now been pushed back even further because we, it's it, often when we're looking into things now in Bellingcat, we find so many new leads just as we're about to publish. And then we say, oh, we have to make sure this is all covered just in case we find some interesting thing. And it's been like a, uh, it's been like a nuclear explosion of those over the last 24 hours. So there'll be a lot coming out of us, uh, you know, on a range of topics, uh, hopefully quite soon, but there'll be plenty of it when it happens. And I see there are a lot of different investigations. Uh, can you give, Listeners, a brief outline of season two of the podcast and why you chose that case as the subject uh, for a podcast. So a couple of years ago, um, a video appeared on the internet that was just um, brutal by the standards of even the videos that I would normally come across in my work, which is covering the conflict in Syria and other conflicts. So it was it was bad. So it showed um, two women and two young children in a road somewhere. It could be anywhere in the world, but it, it looked like it could be Africa. But, you know, that's a big place. There were some soldiers with them. They were marched off the road. And um, they were both executed on the roadside, both women and both the very young children. It was horrible. Um, and it, it started generating some interest online. Then we, we run these workshops and we were running one that week. And what we like to do is give the um, participants a chance to investigate something they want to do at the end of it once they've learned the skills. And this was one of the videos that was um, chosen. Um, so we started looking into it. And um, it, it was just... We managed to establish it was in Cameroon that there was this uh, military that was uh, the military was involved with it and a rough idea of where it was. And the podcast is really about telling the story of how we then were able to show exactly where this execution took place and um, who was involved at the approximate time it took place. And that led to um, the Cameroon government actually in a rare occasion actually taking action but you know really changing their original stance which was calling it fake news so um that's kind of what the series covers because it does a good job of explaining uh sort of what open source journalism is and how many different methods are involved and also how many people are involved because there's a sort of vast network of journalists volunteers you know sometimes working with official investigators you mentioned the workshops so if if someone if i wanted to participate what sort of what, what's the sort of basic toolkit that you would teach in a workshop then? So it's, it's actually stuff you would easily find, you know, you probably use every single day, um, you know, stuff like Google searches and kind of how we use those in research. Um, uh, Google Earth as well, another tool. I, Google does provide a lot of these tools to us for free, just to every single person on the internet. So I, I don't want to sound like I'm promoting them too much, but um, <laughs> so you have Things like Google um, Earth um, shows satellite imagery from different dates, which is extremely useful for dating things. Google Street View that allows us to compare Street View images to photographs or videos we have and confirm where they're actually taken. And these are all accessible to everyone, actually really easy to use. Really, what you have to do is just sit down and have 
have a chance to do it because it is something that most people haven't had experience doing themselves. So taking that first leap into learning, it can seem a bit scary, but actually once you get into it, you realize it's actually just, you know, stuff you would do to look up old friends on Facebook and stuff like that, just focused on, you know, sometimes spies and criminals. Just look, looking up old war criminals on Facebook. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, so how many people uh, just, you know, ballpark, would you say, uh, were involved in something like this, this, this Cameroon investigation of all the different people that, that participated? I mean, really, I think the core group was probably about five or six people. It was made up of researchers from um, Amnesty, um, people from Bellingcat. Uh, we also were working with the BBC. Um, also some people who were just basically followers of Bellingcat who were very, very engaged in this investigation. You know, we didn't know who they were. were. One of them was called Sector 035, and that's literally all I know him by. But I'm interested in his research skills because on Twitter, he's well known for doing this kind of investigation and actually being really good at it. And the great thing about open source investigation is you are basically explaining step by step how you came to your conclusion, providing evidence along every single part of that step. And if you can't take someone else through it, then there's a problem. And that's the kind of beauty of open source. We aren't saying we've been told this thing and now we're telling it to you. We're saying here's the image, here's the moment, and this is why we believe it happened at this moment. And is there something that unites uh, all of these um, people that work for or with Bellingcat um, or is there like a combination of the, where some might be very morally driven and some are kind of, um, you know, puzzle solvers and amateur detectives? Does it does it draw on, on quite a few different personality types? I think there's elements of people's, you know, I, I do this work. When I first started doing it, it was almost like I, I was just interested in what was happening on the ground uh, at first in Libya and then Syria just because I had this kind of interest in world events. There was no kind of real big political drive or, you know, something like that behind it. And in a way, it started becoming a bit of a puzzle. You know, there were debates online about how do you know, you know, where this was filmed, you know, how can you prove it? And I was kind of figured out that you could actually prove this stuff. I could answer that question. And that was something that I found quite enjoyable. And I think that's what a lot of other people have as well. But there are cases when you kind of start getting more personally involved with it. We spent six years investigating the downing of MH17 in uh, eastern Ukraine, which is the first season of the podcast and we spent six years on that we know the family members who are you know the survivors family members uh you know we've helped the police in the work we've been faced constantly by kind of russian lies and deceptions i mean sometimes yeah you, you can get involved you know emotionally involved definitely i mean it's not something where it's all you know it's just a jolly fun and game sometimes when you're dealing with this kind of stuff it's very you know you can really get involved with it well, does it require, I mean, in the same way that I suppose being a, a war reporter might, like a certain kind of emotional uh, armour or resilience? Because you're talking about, like in this second season, you're talking about a video. I have not, I don't know if the video is still even available online, but even just hearing it described, I was like, well, I'm, I'm not going to watch that. Let, let alone watch it over and over again, looking for kind of, you know, the direction of shadows or, you know, landmarks possible landmarks in the background all of those kind of things um do you have to kind of uh, sort of armor yourself against the the kind of the, the the sort of trauma of these kind of images I mean, among the kind of open source investigation community, there's been a lot of discussion about this issue for a long time because um, there's there's concern that people get um, vicarious trauma from looking at these images and how people handle it are, is very similar to you handle kind of real world situations in the same way, except you're being, if you're working as a researcher and you might be 
asked to look through 100 videos and they all show horrific violence, you're going to be exposed to 100 horrific acts, even if you're not there in person. So your ability to detach yourselves from what you're seeing on the screen is something I think that's quite important. You can almost, uh, I feel, personally, I've kind of always trained that as an ability. I've seen so much terrible stuff from across the world that I can kind of prepare myself for it. But there are still things that really shock me. I mean, the one that really got me is the um, video of um, the uh, mosque shooting that happened, um, I think, in Christchurch, where it was streamed online. And that I watched about five seconds of, even before he started shooting. I thought, there's no way I can watch this. I mean, it was you just knew you you also learn not to look at that stuff which can sometimes you know okay this is not going to be good for my brain i'm not going to learn anything from this so i'm going to choose not to look it and i think you, you lose what that kind of curiosity about those videos once you've seen enough of them which is something that a lot of people on the internet still have but you know being aware of that and you know having um support for staff who are looking at that kind of imagery is also very very important Strangely, uh, as I think as you point out in, in, in the first podcast, you know, Bellingcat was started, you started it about three days before M817 was shot down. So it was this kind of weird uh, synchronicity. It was weird timing, yeah, because it, it's now one of the many conspiracy theories about MH17 is Bellingcat was set up before it was shot down as part of some plot. I mean, they never, they're not quite clear on exactly how that works. But um, yeah, I mean, that it really... For me, I've always seen the kind of um, development of open source investigation as kind of four periods. And uh, you kind of have this initial period in 2007 between up until the Arab Spring in 2011 started getting where it was more about kind of news websites and asking people about dodgy weather and stuff like that. And say, send your kind of uh, hurricane photographs to us. And it wasn't really exciting. There was a little bit of that going on. You had the kind of um, Boston Marathon bombing kind of fiasco on Reddit. But then in 2011, you had the conflict in Libya and the conflict in Syria kind of starting up. And that's when we started seeing a lot of this new analysis that I was kind of in the middle of happening. And then you have this kind of third period we're in now, which is 2014, where with the shooting down of MH17, there was kind of this big explosion of interest in open source investigation, both from the public and for people working, you know, at different kinds of bodies, NGOs, you know, international courts. And this was kind of led by, I think, partly the joint investigation team being able to confirm that the open source investigations being done were accurate. And now that's kind of the period when, you know, that was around that time. I mean, Russia is seems in some ways to me sort of Bellingcat's symbolic uh, arch enemy because uh, it's sort of, of course, of its flagrant denials and sort of disinformation campaigns, which obviously people are very familiar with now. Is it the worst offender in your eyes, um, or is it just the most well known and that we just talk about, or you know, what a lot of different countries do, but we see it as the Russian method? Um, well, I mean, the thing from taking that from a kind of open source investigation perspective. The community kind of grew up very much focused first on Libya and then Syria. Uh, it expanded looking into Russia because of MH17, really. MH17 was that moment when really Russia got their attention. But with um, what happened then, because Russia started bombing Syria, or it kind of kept to those very narrow range of subjects, Syria and Russia with a bit of Ukraine and Libya. So 
we know Russia's stuff really well, but we aren't looking at other countries. We're not as annoyed at Russia, and Russia hasn't had the basically promotion in the kind of east and west of being this big pro- propagator of misinformation and you know terrible things. And maybe other countries are doing it too, and maybe they're doing it differently. We just haven't paid them the attention yet. But I think sometimes, um, you know, I looked at an AP story. We're discussing it discussing it today where I think an intel- US intelligence source said there were these sites that were part of a Russian influence campaign against the US election and APM treated it like it was a huge story and these sites had barely a thousand followers they were tiny little websites one was already known to be a GRU operation but it was turned into a much bigger story than it needed to be and that is kind of what happens sometimes, I think, with these discussions about Russia. And, you know, we do focus them on a lot, but we re- we do look at other areas as well. So, and to be honest, if it wasn't for all this spy stuff happening for the scripples, at that, at that period, I was kind of sick of Russia with MH17. I wanted to move on to other topics, but then they just kind of dragged me right back in again. So one thing I wondered about is, as we sort of enter the era of deep fakes, it seems that like states that want to deny stuff will will claim that recordings have been doctored by their enemies. So is there a sort of technological race to stay ahead of the fakes, not only to identify them, but also to be able to to show ordinary people that you can tell what is real and what is not, so that they don't lose faith in primary sources altogether? Because that seems fundamental if they don't believe a video is real. It's um, kind of been done at the kind of point of entry at the for the ecosystem it's it's, it's kind of um there's been a number of organizations who've been developing camera apps for example that have metadata encoded in them and they're secure the problem with those is um they haven't been adopted widely they're very hard to get out to the public unless there's buy-in i think from a major phone manufacturer who has it built into the software but i think that might be very unlikely because i think some people some Oppressive regimes will then see it's a you know like some sort of spy technology or say you're hiding something and it would be justification enough to have the phone see. So that doesn't really cure the problem. So there's the kind of that that point you know that moment where it enters the information eco information system that we can put something on it to say it's authentic, but nobody wants to do it. So that's a problem. Um, We then have um, you know trying to stop it before it happens. I think that's kind of been done in some ways effectively by disinformation campaigns being identified before they happen on social networks by networks being identified. And Facebook and Twitter have been doing a, a fairly decent job of that. They, I, We've kind of been involved with some investigations that have led to Facebook takedowns and uh, takedowns of Twitter networks of inauthentic behavior. And Facebook are really good at engaging with that, as are Twitter. But um, the question is, is there a lot more they could be doing internally with more money? Um, so that's the other kind of question about, you know, at that stage. And then when it's in the ecosystem, I think that's where we might actually be able to have more impact by kind of educating people more about how this stuff is generated, where it comes from. The best example I think I have of kind of almost inoculating people against disinformation is um, there was an example where the Russian MOD published screenshots from what looked like drone cameras uh, or gun cameras that said that it was irrefutable evidence that the U.S. are covering the retreat of ISIS forces to redeploy elsewhere in the Middle East. So the U.S. was going to use ISIS combat forces elsewhere in the Middle East. And it was the Russian Ministry of Defense saying it had um, drone imagery of it. And this was not something they put out lightly. They had it translated into different uh, languages. They put it out as a, a Facebook post and all their social media. 
And people immediately recognized that the screenshot was actually from a computer game. <laughs> and the reason they could do that is because two weeks earlier, I'd seen the same uh, a video that that screenshot was taken from being used by another journalist to claim that this it was a US drone attacking ISIS forces. And because I tweeted about it, I said, this is a video game. The people who follow me are the people who often follow the Russian Ministry of Defense. And they saw this lie the Russian Ministry of Defense published, this computer game image, and immediately called them out on it. And the impact of that was so severe, it was so embarrassing for the Russian Ministry of Defense that it was the first time I've ever seen them retract anything. And if you can make the Russians retract a lie, that's a really powerful thing. But getting that kind of almost preemptive inoculation against disinformation is something that takes real effort. And I think better educational campaigns starting when you know children start using start smartphones. I think there's a recent survey that said half of 10-year-olds in the UK have a smartphone. And that's an incredible number, especially when you consider how much time many of them will spend on it getting information and information that we know can be manipulated and misleading, not just by the Russian government, but by other people who choose to profit from it. And if we don't educate our young citizens how to address those issues and understand them, then they're just going to be as kind of confused and, you know, all over the places we are at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. The digital literacy of uh, it's the classic relatives on Facebook problem where the digital literacy seems to be zero. Yes. Um, and it's, I mean, it's useful in our work. I mean, I hope they don't do it for the GRU, but you know, if they can do it for some British kids, that'll be good. Um, now, a lot of sort of independent uh, journalists and independent media outlets sort of pride themselves in this adversarial relationship with the with the MSM, you know, that that's sort of, um, they, they kind of hate them. Um, and yet you're talking about there's people from Le Monde, there's people from the BBC, all kinds of different uh, media outlets uh, where, where there's some sort of collaboration and overlap. What is your relationship with that, with the, um, with the mainstream um, media? Or I suppose, you know, those sort of legacy media organisations. What, what do you do that they, that they can't or, or won't? Bellingcat does quite a lot that people don't really know about. We um, are involved with um, kind of building cases, various uh, bodies and with various lawyers to do with things like arms control. We had a project on Yemen that was uh, the evidence from which was being submitted to various uh, proceedings. And recently, the gov UK government inquiry into selling arms to Yemen, which uh, to Saudi Arabia, which um, they obviously just moved the goalposts on so they could do it anyway. But we are, you know, that's something we don't really talk about because it's you know, attract some unwanted attention sometimes of a different kind from what we normally get. We have the more front-facing kind of media stuff. Because we work in all these kind of different areas, we have all kinds of contexts and, um, you know, people in our network. And, you know, taking us back to the um, uh, second season of the podcast and the Cameroon video, that was just kind of taking advantage of this network that we're part of, all different kinds of people with human rights NGOs joining us, with a major news organization joining us, with people of Twitter joining us. We, When we want to get an answer, we use kind of every tool at our disposal. And it's not just, just digital tools, it's people and organizations and people can help us find what the actual truth of this is and actually have an impact with what we find. Because if we're not doing that, then I think we're doing a disservice to many of the people who are recording these videos, who for them, it really is a question of justice and accountability and raising awareness of what's happening to them. And in a way, the way Bellingcat works is we're the interface between those people capturing that image who actually want the world to see it and us making sure that the world sees it, understands it and takes action. So is there, I mean, is there a kind of real, um, 
I suppose what's the moral impulse behind you setting it up and and what you do was it was it just a kind of um a dis- sort of a disgust with uh with deception um was it I, I just want, I wonder what it is particularly that I suppose that drives you and then because like you say you are often getting sort of attempts uh you know to hack or fish you or whatever from uh various uh, enemies around the world you know it, it's not uh, particularly easy um and I wonder what what is the kind of the real driver for you um I, I think it's kind of maybe evolved a bit over the time I mean initially it was I think partly frustration that there were certain things I wanted to know and journalists weren't covering those things. And I could see there was other stuff on the internet that seemed really interesting and relevant to those things. It's just a very simple urge. And I just really wanted to know that stuff. I was just maybe a bit a bit too obsessive about that particular kind of news, but I just was really interested in learning more about it. Um, and I think that was kind of my motivation. But when you start, I, I think for me, one of the first moments is I did a uh, this kind of camp with a hundred activists and lawyers and journalists in um, the Italian mountains with an organisation called Tactical Tech, and there I've been like blogging for a year. I hadn't got the profile I have now. I was just writing stuff I thought was interesting. It was just after I'd revealed um, a lot of information about the August twenty first, two thousand and thirteen sarin attacks. So and also that the uh, US was smuggling um, or the. Saudis were smuggling weapons to the rebels in southern Syria and documented it using YouTube videos. So I was still very new. And I met all these amazing activists who were doing these really incredible things, taking real danger. And just as they were talking, I could just see, you know, they're talking about these things could be investigated using what I'm doing. And I started realizing that it has more of a value than just kind of showing people what is interesting. You know, just say, look at this. This is interesting. This is what it means. You can actually do more with it than that. And the more you do this and the more you realize why people are capturing these, this imagery in the first place and doing these things is they're taking a risk to tell the world about something that is serious and terrible. And if we just look away and say, you know, that's not enough of a riff, is it graphic enough for us to care about? Um, then we're doing a huge disservice to those people. They, you know, it's, would be a terrible thing to do that. And fortunately, we can actually take all this information and do something really positive with it. So both of these series, both series, of these podcasts, they end up identifying the culprits by by name. Now, sort of in a movie, we would see them sort of marching out of their homes, pushed into a police car, and 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 perhaps their kind of superiors as well. Who you know who who, was, who gave the orders in the first place. Um, now, for various reasons, this is is not what happens. I mean, I don't want to sort of spoil the endings of these. Um, but it's not a sort of clean, well, the truth is out, therefore uh, justice is immediately done. So what do you consider, and that could be very frustrating, um, so what do you consider a sort of job well done? Well, I mean, one thing this has taught me is that like, the truth can be a very long, painful, drawn-out thing, and it can take you years to get to anywhere close to justice. I mean, we've spent six years on MH17. I mean, it's so obvious Russia is guilty. It's like just... I mean, we're we're really in the middle of all this evidence, so we've seen everything that you can possibly see, and it's really obvious Russia is guilty. But it takes so long to get to the point where there's now a court case, and that court case definitely going to take probably another year at least, maybe multiple years, and it takes so long. But sometimes you do have things where there is something that happens very very quickly. There have been cases where you know, I mean, I gave the example earlier of that um, you know Russian disinformation about the fake drone image. That was immediate. That was very satisfying to see actually cause and effect immediately because you usually don't see that. And 
sometimes you know we've um helped the police i you know find uh with the europol um tracing objects stop child abuse campaign where europol asked people to identify objects from um they cut out of child abuse imagery um just locate where these photographs could be and these were basically images that were the last chance for the children who were inside these and if they weren't looked at they would be filed away forever and they would not be able to do anything with them this is the only reason they could be able you know get to the point of sharing them and we saw them doing it and they've got a twitter account with you know few thousand followers i think at the time and i just thought that's such a great subject for our community around bellingcat to do and we sh- i shared that and they started getting loads of answers loads of these areas objects identified we even started seeing photographs of backgrounds and our team geolocated some of them and as a result of that you know they've i think they've arrested two or three people now and rescued like nine children and even one of those rescues or one of those prosecutions would have made not only you know that project worth it but you know the entire year you know maybe even Bellingcat's entire existence because you know you've you've actually changed something and you've done it with the help of your community which is one of the things I've really loved about that project. And do you think that these investigations will act as a a deterrent I'm thinking of for example the the the, the, this video in Cameroon um, that just the action of filming uh, the murders uh, provided all this information which enabled the the, the killers to be identified. Um, now, do you think that means that people are just sort of less likely to do things or just to be savvier about, um, you know, not recording them to become more aware? Because a lot of, a lot of the, you know, a lot of the things you seem to find out is people being a- amazingly careless uh, and, and sort of blurting things out uh, left, right and centre. Well, I think it's down to the, the number of people who've actually heard that you can do this kind of thing. It's actually really tiny. Yeah. <laughs> so we have an advantage, especially if you, sure, in Ukraine, you've probably got a good sense of it. If you're Dutch and you know about NMH17, you know about it. But you, it's not something you'd really encounter or realise could be so kind of intense until probably you came across the work of Bellingcat. And that's only if you, we, you know, we focused, like as I said before, on Russia, Syria, Ukraine a lot. So they, people around there know as well. But in other countries, they just have no clue whatsoever about this. It's just not something people have encountered in their day-to-day lives. I, I honestly think this. And so the, what's great is they don't take any precautions. They still make all the mistakes they make in all the other countries. You've already heard about mm. us. So, and some new ones as well, which can be good. Um, so that's kind of what we're looking for. We're you Just because, like, I mean, Russia has changed the law now that if you're a Russian soldier and you take a photograph and post it on social media, you go to jail. I mean, that's because of the work we've done actually forcing Russia to actually make that a law, which is insane when you think about it. I mean, we're just a little organization. I started in Leicester on a couch with a laptop, and now Russia's having to change the law because of what we've found. (laughs) That's uh, quite flattering. Well, the thing is, if I can do that, believe me, anyone else can, because I'm not like some special genius. I mean, blimey, you just have to look at the first 25 years of my life to see (laughs) that. I didn't really do anything. But... If I can do it and enjoy it and make amazing you know, discoveries, I want other people to do it. And I mean, this is why on Bellingcat, we've just relaunched the website. We're going to hopefully at some point this year add a volunteer section where we can do more crowdsource investigations and get more people involved with the community aspect of it. And, you know, one thing we want to do is um, we work a lot with um, the Syrian archive. 
Um, and they, they've basically collected over a million videos from Syria and they need to be organized. Then what we could do with this kind of volunteered crowdsourcing is start one by one, figuring out where all these videos are filmed from Syria because people don't know. And then start using that as basically a huge data set to start understanding the conflict in a historical context um, and make that accessible to organizations working in justice and accountability and a community working together can do that. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Elliot Higgins. That's no problem. Thank you. The Bellingcat podcast season two is available now on every podcast platform. Bellingcat is independent and ad free, so it relies on donations to do its work. You can donate to them via Patreon. Details at bellingcat.com. The Bunker Daily comes out every Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, and Friday with a full length weekly episode every Wednesday. Thanks for listening. Take care. We'll see you next time. The Bunker Daily was presented by Dorian Linsky. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producer was Jacob Archbold. And audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker Daily is a Podmasters production. Bunker Daily.